Phillies Nation! Welcome to the Phillies Nation podcast. It's episode number 22. I'm Tim Malcolm, the editorial director of philliesnation.com. Go there today for all of your news, rumors, information, opinion, and much more about the Philadelphia Phillies. You can find us on Twitter at Phillies Nation, Instagram at Phillies Nation underscore, and Facebook, facebook.com slash Phillies Nation. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spreaker, TuneIn Radio, and YouTube.com slash Phillies Nation. We have a really big podcast for you today, by the way. I um, Here's the deal. little housekeeping to start with, okay? We're doing this every two weeks from now on. And uh, you may have noticed this at this point. We started doing it every two weeks a couple weeks ago. But this is the official announcement. Mostly because, and being completely honest with you, it takes a lot of time. And I have a lot going on and other things. And so it's just easier for me to do the podcast every two weeks. But we still have this podcast. And then the opposite week, or the alternating week, I should say, you will get Playing the Rube, which is the podcast that I do with Dan Walsh, where we are GMs of the 2009 Philadelphia Phillies through Out of the Park Baseball 2018. So every week you'll get something. It'll be this podcast this week. Next week, you'll get Playing in the Rube. The week after, you'll get the Philly Station podcast again. This comes out on Mondays. Playing the Rube comes out on Fridays. Same thing. Just every week, you'll get something different. And every two weeks, you'll get this podcast. That's it. But because we have every two weeks now with the Phillies Nation podcast, there was a lot going on and a lot that I could get to. So we decided to put together a really giant, jam-packed, humongous, enormous, mammoth podcast. It is tremendous. It is the biggest I've seen in years. Uh, It's a big podcast. You may look at your Apple podcast and say, whoa, two hours. What's going on here? It's Yeah, it's a two-hour podcast today. We've broken it up into two parts. The first hour, you will get Phillies talk, current Phillies talk. And the second hour, you'll get a special topic that we're going to talk about in a second. I'll break it up in the middle with a commercial and just, you know, kind of a reprise of the theme and all that good stuff. So it plays off like a two-hour show. But it's a big podcast today. We have a lot going on. First hour, we're going to talk about the Phillies, obviously. Corey Sharp will be on the show. And Corey's going to talk about, first off, how exciting this team is. They just took two of, uh, excuse me, three of four from the Miami Marlins. And before that, they took two of three from the Chicago Cubs. Slipped up a little bit in Atlanta, but that's okay. They, uh, excuse me, against Atlanta. They were at home against Atlanta, but they took three of four in Miami, which is fantastic. And so they're playing really well, and they have an energy that we haven't seen in a long time. And Corey and I talked about that. And then later on in that hour, Corey will come back. We'll talk about Jared Eikhoff, who's had a very tough season. He's struggled a lot with consistency. Um, He, of course, is now in the 60-day DL. He's out for the rest of the year. And we'll talk more about what we saw from this year and what his outlook is for next year if he makes the team. Also on the show in the first hour, we'll have Jeff Israel, who we've had on the program before, twice before actually, and he will talk about the Phillies' prospects and how they fared this year in the minor leagues, the minor league system, uh, wrapping up the regular season, uh, really today actually, uh, a couple more games after this, but that's about it. And Jeff will talk about who performed well, uh, above expectations I should say, and who performed disappointingly, below expectations. So a really good conversation with Jeff, who's over at Phillies Minor Thoughts, 
philliesminorthoughts.com. Really good website. Uh, Matt Winkleman runs it. He does a great job with that. Jeff does great work over there. We'll talk with him in a bit. Second hour, we will talk about the Philadelphia Athletics. Of course, that was the team that is now the Oakland Athletics, who come into Philadelphia at the end of next week. And we wanted to talk about the A's and A's history. So we bring in two guys who are really, really knowledgeable about the Philadelphia Athletics. First off, we'll have William Cachetis, who's done three books on the Philadelphia A's. They're called Connie Max 29 Triumph, Money Pitcher, Chief Bender, and the Tragedy of Indian Assimilation, and the Philadelphia Athletics, which is a Images of History book. So he'll come on a little bit later on in the show to talk about uh, the athletics and athletics history. And then after that, we'll bring in Bruce Kuklick, who's done a book on Shy Park. It's called To Everything a Season. Really good book about the history of Shy Park. He's talked to a lot of people who went to games at Shy Park, people who are involved in Shy Park. Um, if you never heard anything about Shy or what it was later, Connie Mack Stadium, you'll want to listen to this interview because it's really, he brings some really good stories to the fray about what Shy Park was like back in the 50s and the 60s and even before that, some of the more earlier stories of the park, how it was built, what it was like, the experience of being there, great stuff from Bruce and William Cachetis does a great job talking about athletics history and we had a really good talk as well. So you should listen to that in the second hour. But the first hour we're going to devote here to the Phillies and as I said, a team that is really, really exciting right now. I, I'm actually excited to turn on the game again. I wrote back in May at philliesnation.com that I was tired of this team. And it was really because I was tired of watching the guys that we've been watching for the past two to three years do the same things that we have been seeing over time. I'm talking about Freddie Galvis. By the way, I'm going to steer back a little bit on the Freddie Galvis stuff because his glove is incredible. And I, I have to be real, the glove has made me a convert. I used to be really down on Galvis's bat because it's still not a good bat. 252, 303, 392 going into Sunday, that's not good. But he gives you a gold glove, glove, gold glove, shortstop glove, and that is something that you can't duplicate. So Galvis, to me, is, I'm okay with him. I'll take him. If he's here next year as a shortstop of this team, and maybe J.P. Crawford's playing another position, we'll talk with Corey Sharp about that in a second, that might be something that happens, and I'm okay with that because Galvis has really shown himself to be a phenomenal defensive player. But I was really sick of, I guess, guys like Cameron Rupp, Tommy Joseph, you know, Michael Franco swinging and missing at things and, and not looking like he has a real strategy for how he's going to hit the ball or attack an at-bat, that stuff was really getting to me. And I wrote about that back in May. Well, now you have a totally different team. Yes, you still have Cameron Rupp having tough at-bats, uh, very league average at the plate, and he's below average behind the plate. So it's really tough to kind of go with him all the time. You have Tommy Joseph not being the kind of first baseman power hitter that you want him to be. You have Michael Franco continuing to disappoint us in a lot of ways and not being the better hitter that we know he could be. But you also have Nick Williams, who looks phenomenal. And the nickname right now is Big Knock Nick. That is the nickname I'm going with. We are stamping it down. We are potentially going with a patent on it. Big Knock Nick is the name. 
Nick Williams has been great in big situations where he needs a clutch hit. He's gotten those clutch hits. He got one Sunday with that two-run single in extra innings. He's great defensively. Fantastic. Obviously, Reese Hoskins. We haven't talked about him since the last podcast. And my goodness, are you kidding me? All the home runs he's hit. He now has 12 home runs in just 100 plate appearances. Think about that for a second. Ryan Howard didn't do that. This is exceptional stuff. This is Mark McGuire 1998 stuff. And hopefully very likely without any of the side stuff. This is incredible baseball we're watching. And then Jorge Alfaro very quietly doing his job. And I'll talk about him a little bit more with Corey. This team looks so much more fun than they were back in May, back in June. And you get a great bullpen out of that too. Remember how terrible this bullpen was early in the season? Now we have a bullpen we can rely on. Hector Neris got himself back together. He looks unhittable again. I mean, look at our guy. Look at our guy, Hobie Milner, who we almost gave up in the Roll 5 draft, and we were able to get him back, thankfully, because Cleveland didn't hold on to him. Hobie Milner's been very good. I mean, the big guy to me that has been such a shining image that I didn't think was going to be seen here is Adam Morgan. Adam Morgan. What happened to this guy? When did he become a great pitcher? I'm not quite sure. His August numbers are exceptional. 55 plate appearances he's faced, 208 batting average, 236 on base, 226 slug, 22 strikeouts, two walks in the month of August. 22 strikeouts, two walks, all in relief appearances. And the platoon splits are why. Against righties, righties are hitting 323, 388, 581, 17 strikeouts, 10 walks. Left-handed hitters, 211, 250, 395, 35 strikeouts, four walks. Adam Morgan is a revelation against left-handed hitting. He needs to be the loogie next year. There's no question about it. He's the guy. He will get, I believe, an arbitration payment next year. Maybe it's the last year of his rookie contract. He's arbitration eligible in 2019, so he gets one more year of rookie contract. He's the loogie. He's the guy. There is no doubt in my mind that he's the guy. And Luis Garcia. Now, this is the same thing as Hector Neris who we talked about earlier. Hector Neris is 28. He's a little bit more of a veteran. Luis Garcia is 30 years old. He's a veteran on this team. And he's about to hit arbitration, I believe, as well pretty soon. But he's been phenomenal. Phenomenal. 2.76 ERA, 48 strikeouts, 21 walks for Luis Garcia. Eighth inning, he's been locked down. It's great to see. He's ARB eligible after this year. So we'll see what happens. But the Phillies have a working bullpen for next year. In Naris, Garcia, Morgan, Milner, Edgerbray Ramos can come back in. He's had a very good second half. He's kind of solidified himself once again out of that stress of the late innings. We are a far cry from where we were earlier in the season with Joaquin Benoit up and down and up and down and Joely Rodriguez having a terrible season most of the way. We have a pretty good bullpen in front of us now. It's a good thing to see. And hopefully that carries over to next year. 
And of course, I also want to mention before we get to Corey Sharp, this might be the day that J.P. Crawford gets called up to the big leagues. As of Sunday evening, he had not been called up. The Iron Pig season ends on Monday, today. So it's possible that J.P. Crawford gets called up right after the game. We'll see what happens. But this could be it. We can finally get J.P. Crawford in a Phillies uniform. And if that happens, then he'll be in City Field as the Phillies play the Mets in the in, in this series uh, in New York over Labor Day and then the next two nights. It'd be very interesting to see what happens. If the Phillies decide to keep him at shortstop, if they play him at third base, maybe even second base, we'll see. Is Scott Kingery going to be with him? I'm not sure. I'm a little bit more skeptical about that. I think the Phillies might want to see him just take us take the winner off, maybe go to winter ball or, or, or fall league or something like that, just kind of work on some things, and then come back in spring training and maybe win a spot with the Phillies or go to Lehigh Valley. But Crawford looks more like a bank to come in and get a couple starts with the Phillies at the end of 2017. Will we see any other players? I don't know. Maybe one or two guys who kind of just fill up the roster. We'll probably see a third catcher. Logan Moore might come up. Uh, but otherwise, you're not getting much more. But Crawford is the name to keep your eye on. He might, should, probably will come up over the next day or two. And once he does, we'll see what happens. Where they put him, who gets to sit, and what they decide to do with that spot. And also the outfield. Because, as you know, Aaron Altair and Odubel Herrera are about ready to come back. Once they do, Nick Williams can't sit down. So what's going to happen with Reese Hoskins? Well, probably going to first base. Tommy Joseph will probably take a seat for a little bit. But you'll also probably see some lineup juggling with the outfield. I'm sure Aaron Altair and Odubel Herrera will not sit, will not play every day. Uh, they'll get some rest too because of the injuries. And they don't want to, the Phillies probably don't want to push them too much at the end of the year here. But it'll be really interesting to see how the lineup fills out here as we get into the final weeks of the season. Crawford, Altair, Herrera, Hoskins, a lot of names to kind of put in the lineup and figure out where they go. Phillies have some work to figure out here to see what they're doing every day, and Pete McCann is going to have a tough job in front of him, but hopefully we'll get to see some of these young kids play more often than not. So I want to talk a little bit more about how the Phillies are more exciting than... They've been all season over the past really sort of month and a half or so, two months, really since the Nick Williams call up, I would say they've been very exciting. Uh, Corey Sharp is with me from philliesnation.com to talk a little bit more about that. Corey, um, do you agree that this is a more exciting team than, than uh, you know, early on in the year? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, just since the All-Star break, well, Nick Williams was called up, I believe it was June 30th, but since, since the All-Star break, uh, the Phillies are 22 and 26. Um, it kind of doesn't seem like it, but <laughs> it, it, it's kind of crazy. But you know, like I said, you know, so, so they're winning some more games. So, yeah, they, they are a little bit more exciting to watch now with, with the infusion of, you know, young, younger blood. It, it, is, it is fun to watch. Yeah, I mean, they had a really bad August where I think they went like 8-20 and 20 or something like that. So that really skewed everything. Um, and I just came up with that number off the top of my head. I know it was a pretty bad month. But um, the numbers, you know, Nick Williams has been really, really solid. Uh, strikeout numbers are still a little high, 66 already in 231 plate appearances. So he kind of looks like a guy who will strike out maybe 140, 150 times a year. Um, hopefully that goes down as he gets more comfortable in the league. But 333 on base percentage is, is pretty good. I mean, on this team, it's, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, it's and he's a slugger. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love – um, yeah, as, as reporters, we're kind of supposed to say biased, but we are Phillies Nation, so uh, it's a little different. 
I, I do love a guy, though, that um, that says they're going to work on something, and then they actually do it. So, for example, Nick Williams in 125 games last year, 527 plate appearances. He walked a total of 19 times. So, coming into this year, obviously, we, we knew that was, that was an issue. Uh, so, 78 games in Lehigh Valley this year, 306 plate appearances. He walked 16 times. <laughs> Still a, a lot better. Um, yeah, we still like to see that higher. But now he comes up to the big leagues, 56 games, 231 plate appearances, already 16 walks. So you, you can kind of see that he really is, you know, focused up here. And, and it's, uh, it's cool to see. And another thing I talked to him about in May, um, how he really uh, battles against left-handed pitching. Now he's hitting 273 overall this season. He's hitting 273 against lefties, 273 against righties. Hmm. So he's been obviously very consistent on both ways. And perfect example, Saturday night, you know, bases clearing triple off a, off a lefty, a 2-2 count. He takes the slider to right center and, um, you know, brought the Phillies within a run. So it's stuff like that that you really love, love to see. Yeah, I, I really like what Nick Williams has brought to this team. He's Obviously, he can hit the ball a long ways and can get extra base hits. But he doesn't slump for too long. He will strike out a little bit, but as you said, he's getting more patient and he seems to be working on everything. And his defense in the outfield. He's made some really spectacular plays out in right field and center field this year. So it's really awesome to see someone like that come in, 23 years old, and it looks like he will be part of this future. Uh, Another player who's kind of worked a little bit on his plate discipline as well is Jorge Alfaro, who very sneakily, because of all the Reese Hoskins hype, has just kind of come in here and done a really nice job. He's hitting 347, 373 on base, 449 slug. And the discipline numbers, yeah, he's got 15 strikeouts, but he had a ton of them in the first couple games. Two walks. He's actually really become more disciplined at the plate and is able to lock in on pitches, and he's been able to hit the ball either for outs or for hits. What have you seen from Alfaro? Yeah, well, I mean, when, when he uh, hits a ball, aren't they, like, thunderous? Yeah. I mean, he really puts a charge into it when, when, he, uh, when he does connect. And, you know, he's played 13 games this year. I kind of wish he's played a little bit more, to be honest. Um, I, I think the Cameron Rupp train has kind of passed us by. But, it's, um, it's been passed for a while, man. <laughs> right, right, a while. But uh, he's recorded a hit in 12 of those 13 games. And, and the one hit I remember, when you go back to San Diego, like I said, how thunderous they are. That ball got out in such a hurry. And I'm just impressed with his overall frame. He's 6'2", 225. He's, like, built like an ox. I mean, that that's pretty... And he can run. He can run, too. He's pretty fast on the line. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he's he's got a special build, and he's got, you know, special skills, obviously. You know, and when he connects, man, that... I wouldn't want to be playing the infield. Yeah, so with... Uh, the other guy I want to talk about real quick before we get back into the prospect stuff is uh, Cesar Hernandez, your friend, who uh, I know you, you're a big Cesar Hernandez fan. And, boy, has he had a great second half, 293, 383, 453. He's got a couple home runs, a couple doubles, uh, but he's really just been a solidifying force there at the top of the lineup. Talk about – I know you want to see Cesar on this team next year, uh, either at second base or somewhere else, but what do you think about his future here in Philadelphia? Do you think that he's a viable piece and that – the Phillies should hold on to him as much as possible. What's funny, I mean, I think with the struggles of Mike Calfranca, which I wrote um, last week, uh, I believe it was last week or the week before, that there, there's more reason to keep Hernandez. I mean, wh- 
you know, I, I advocated for a Hernandez and Kingery, one, in, you know, as a leadoff hitter and, and two hole. I mean, I really believe that, that those guys could wreak havoc up top for Nick Williams and Herrera and um, Reese Hoskins. I mean, that, that could be scary next year. Um, so he's doing everything that they're asking him to do uh, in Cesar. So I, I really do believe that he does have a future here, especially with the struggles of Franco now. Yeah, and the 357 on base percentage for the year, we kind of figured that it would go down a little bit from last year. We didn't – early in the year, it looked like he was regressing back to the Cesar that we knew from before last year, but he's actually brought it back up, and he looks like a pretty good baseball player. He looks like a guy who can be on a, on a first-division team every day, so that's great to see. Now, next year is a whole different story. I don't want to get into it too much here, but – this year, we have about a month left here, less than that, and of course, the podcast is coming out on Monday, and we might be seeing J.P. Crawford being called up today. Maybe Scott Kingery gets called up. Who knows? But the last month of the year, what do you hope to see with the Phillies and young players, and who do you hope that they play? Who do you hope uh, – where do you hope that they play? Uh, what, what do you kind of want to see in this last month? I, I want to see J.P. Crawford play third base. I, I really do. Um yeah, obviously there's a month left in the year. Franco still is not – he's still – I mean, for example, you know, like I said, I was watching the game Saturday night, a 2-0 count, and he just – he swung a miss at a fastball, you know, in the third inning. You know, it's like, what else are you looking for? So just to me, it, it, he's not he's not making the right adjustments. I, I would wake him up a little bit. Like, the season's lost. Just why, why not just play – J.P. Crawford to see what he's got, um, you know, for the majority of the time. I, w- I would play him probably 70% of the time over Franco. I think that would really, I don't know, to me, that would really wake him up. Well, our Evan Gus has a piece on philliesnation.com, just came out on Sunday, about Michael Franco. And if this is the possible end for him, uh, and talking about J.P. Crawford, obviously, as a third-base option next year, and even in September, it's going to be interesting to see how this works out because the Phillies certainly have a lot of decisions to make between Franco, one of those middle infielders, Galvis or Hernandez, Cameron Rupp, Tommy Joseph, you know, even Aaron Altair potentially because of his injury history. Maybe the Phillies decide that he's worth some value in the trade market. There's a lot of things that they have to figure out in the next couple months. Um, next year, if you like, if, if someone put the bullet to your head, uh, uh, Corey, um, who do you think is the starting infield for the Phillies on opening day? Um, man, that's tough. Um, <laughs> I go Reese Hoskins at first. I would go, um, her, I go Hernandez, or I'm sorry, Kingry at second. I would go JP Crawford at short and, um, and Hernandez at third. Okay. That is, I, I you know, I'm a Freddie guy too, but yeah, I just, I think they're going to go in the direction of uh, of uh, J.P. Crawford. Part of part of me thinks that Galvis, because of his arbitration, and he's going to get another raise next year. That maybe the Phillies are going to try to trade him in the off season because that salary is going to go up a little bit. But then another part of me says that Scott Kingery needs a little bit more time in AAA. His strikeout numbers are still a little high. They want to see him get comfortable there. I am bull to my head. Hoskins at first, Hernandez at second. Galvis at short, Crawford at third. That's my bullet to my head prediction for it. And then Crawford can slide over to short if they decide to trade Galvis. You know, I'm, I've always been sort of anti-Galvis because his, his stick is just so bad and, and I don't like watching him hit. 
But that glove is so unbelievably good that it's yeah. like I, I want him on the team, you know, because it's just so wonderful to watch a gold glove shortstop again. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And and as for Kingery, I don't know. I just don't, I don't feel like they're going to waste any more time with him down there. Like, I think he's, he's he'll be ready by opening day. That, that's my perspective. Well, we'll see what happens. I mean, we have another month here, and maybe he'll get called up, and maybe Crawford will get called up. I'm sure he will. It'll be fun to watch. Uh, Corey, we'll talk to you a little bit later on in the show. Cool. Thank you. Well, the regular season for minor league uh, baseball teams in the Phillies organization is just about finished. And I wanted to take a look at who may have been may have been better this year than we thought. Maybe their stock had been raised. And look at some guys who maybe were more disappointing this year. And for that, I bring in Jeff Israel, who we had on the podcast previously a couple times now, from philliesminorthoughts.com. Uh, Jeff, welcome back to the podcast. How's it going? Uh, everything's good. Good, Tim. How are you, man? I'm doing well. Doing well. So, uh yeah, this has been a very interesting year for the Phil's uh, system. A lot of a lot of big movement for guys that I think some of us figured that guys would, you know, make their voices heard, and they did. Uh, some other guys who we didn't expect kind of uh, raised their profile. Um, just to start with who you thought had a really good season in the organization, give me like three guys who you kind of thought um, were really uh, above expectation. So uh, the obvious starter in all this is Scott Kingry for – pretty much obvious reasons. I, a lot, the expectation was he, he was a good hitter. He could take his pitches, get decent walk rates. It's, what was unexpected was the consistency of the hit. I mean, for, this, this is a guy at one point, when the moment he got uh, up from double-A to triple-A, a, he had a 16-game hit streak. First day of August, he, had, he was hitless and snapped it. And then the next day, he starts a 23-game hit streak. Hmm. So, it, you know, there's been a lot of questions going around whether him or Cesar Hernandez, like who will be better in the later run. They're both pretty similar. But they kind of get to it in, like, different ways. Like, Kingry has maybe a little more or pop, but not much more or than um, Cesar. Or, but he'll probably get more – or get on base more because he gets a lot more hits. Cesar mm-hmm. will draw maybe a couple more walks, but they both take deep, deep at-bats. Another guy that I was fairly impressed with this year here was Jalen Ortiz. And I did not ex- – I, I expected him to really struggle at Williamsport at 18 years old. Oh, he maybe hit some home runs, but I was thinking – uh, you know, I was thinking maybe like 240, 40, right, it, with maybe a strikeout percentage of about like 30% and, and a low walk rate. He has a walk rate of 9.6% and a strikeout rate of 25%, and, he hits, and he's been hitting 302 this year here. In a pretty tough – and Williamsport is a tough ballpark to hit home runs at, and he makes it look easy to either – left field or right field. And, you know, Dylan Cousins probably has the most impressive power in the system because he's more developed. I think by next – I think in a year or two – I think by next year, if Dylan Cousins is still on this team, in this organization, Jalen Ortiz will probably surpass him him in terms of impressive power because 
that's how very highly regarded I am. How very regard, highly regarded I think of him. And he still struggles with breaking balls, as most teenagers do. But I've very much admired the adjustments he's made to be able to draw walks and at least keep that strikeout rate reasonable. Reasonable, unlike Dylan Cousins, who we'll probably get to later, but we're not done on such a thing. Yeah, I mean, Jalen Ortiz, I'm looking at his numbers here, and 15 doubles, uh, eight home runs in 159 at-bats. That I mean, the guy just seems to be finding holes, and he seems to get the ball in the air a little bit and get some line drives. Um, you know, 401 on base percentage. He, he clearly looks like he's sort of beyond Williamsport at this point. That's really surprising for an 18-year-old, as you said. Um, do, do you see them? Is it likely he just goes to Lakewood next year? I mean, is there any chance that he gets bumped up even to Clearwater, or is he going to Lakewood? He's going to Lakewood. I, I okay. don't think they would rush him the same way that they are probably going to rush Sixto Sanchez at this point. He, he, at, and they're the same age. And remember, Jalen Ortiz, they overpaid. They actually went out of their way to get extra money so they could overpay for him a few years ago when they paid him the highest bonus they've ever given any international prospect at $4 million. And so far, the investment looks pretty much worth it at this point. But in terms of his where he's going to start, it is going to be Lakewood, though. Oh. Um, give me a pitcher. What, is there any pitcher in the system above? I mean, there's been a lot of great pitching performances this year, especially in the low minors. But uh, give me one pitcher that you think has stood out among the rest as far as surprising. You know, we all know about Sixto Sanchez. But what about surprising, uh, good good pitching? The, the, I, I would say that, you know, you know, it was going to probably be Sir Anthony Dominguez. And then the injury happened, and... You know, he took a little bit of a step back and because it kept him out a couple of months. And he never really got his rhythm back, and his control kind of sputtered down the stretch. And I would probably say Adonis Medina because, remember, last year in Williamsport, he was heavily a ground ball pitcher. And, is it, and he got into a very impressive start, or basically, like, allowing, like, one earned run over, like, 20 innings or so or zero earned runs, actually, in, like, his first, like, three, four starts or something like that. And he – but he was only striking out out batters at, like, a 4.7 Evan K per nine rate. And he – and that's fine, but that's not good for the things he could control because his fifth was actually, like, 4.67. Even though his ERA said two nine two, he, you know, there have been, and I haven't seen him since April. I'm probably going to see him actually on Sunday, Sunday again. But he's made such great adjustments, you know, improving his lower half mechanics, is keeping his velocity still 94 to 96 a little more consistently, he, with that heavy sinking fastball. But he's been getting a lot more strikeouts because he really developed of his breaking ball, which is kind of more of a slur, he's almost at a strikeout. His K for nine rate is now nearly 10. So he's nearly doubled that in a year. So if we're talking about a pitcher that has made 
true significant strides from one year to the next, it's probably Adonis Medina. You know, because I think he solidified himself from I think he's solidified himself more from being a back end maybe more of a back end starter to having a better chance to being a mid rotation star closer to a number three with the development of that breaking ball this year. Yeah, I mean he clearly has uh made amazing adjustments this year. As you said, the strikeout rate, it's astounding how well he's sort of improved on that. And he's twenty years old, he'll be twenty one next year, so uh looks like he's gonna probably just go up to Clearwater, continue uh refining that breaking ball and continue to be a consistent pitcher. That's great to see. Um okay, let's talk about disappointments because we have a few sort of I guess high notoriety disappointments in the system. And you mentioned one earlier and I think you're gonna bring them up again, but who's your who's your first disappointment? Dylan Cousins, and it's not, and, you know, you know what you're going to get with Dylan, you know, a lot of strikeouts, but a lot of big-time power, too, but it's just the way it kind of happened, happened, because he didn't have a great April, April at all, he was basically, he basically struck out, like, 40 times in April, April, and he improved in May, and you thought, and from, like, May to mid-June, you're like, all right, Maybe the Phillies have something here of a pretty darn good fourth outfielder. And then all of a sudden, it's absolutely transformed. In his last 44 games, he's struck out 74 times. That is and – and now his season strikeout rate is at 35.6%. That is oh, yeah. almost – it's almost really hard to think about that at, at right now. Because – and it's not like that's a small sample size. That's a full season's worth of events. And he's barely homered in the second half. And I just, I think he fell off, off completely. And I just think, and maybe next year that will improve. And especially now with a more established outfielder in the majors, maybe he can kind of just work, continue to work on recognizing pitches. But he's got a much longer way to go oh, than, you know, what Nick Williams, let's say, he had with his strikeout problems, problems, because Dylan just cannot recognize a breaking ball at all. And you know, Mickey Moniak, Mickey Moniak is a disappointment just because he is a number one overall pick, and mm-hmm. that's pretty much it. If you take the concept of him being that number one overall pick, it out of the equation, you have to remember to real. You gotta realize he's 19 years old, playing full season ball in a league that is probably more advanced than he is is at this point point as well. Oh, oh. Now, throughout the se- and it's funny because throughout the season, people have been asking me, you know, AJ Puck is doing so much better than he is, or Nick Senzel, <laughs> or Kyle Lewis. Well, Kyle Lewis keeps getting hurt for one. And I would probably – there was only one guy I really would have picked at number one, and I knew they weren't going to take him, and that was Jason Groom, who got picked by the Red Sox at number 12 because of character issues. issues. And he even he got hurt this year. A.J. Puck I would have passed on because I just thought he was too wonky, wonky with his mechanics, and I was afraid he, he would eventually long-term be a reliever. And I think Moniak was still the right pick especially if they were going to play money ball with it, it like they did last year to get all those other high-priced talents. But 
you know, he's struggled against left-handers. He's put up plenty of decent at-bats, at, but if he's getting break balls early. He's going down very quickly. Yeah. And the, these are things that he's going to have to work on on throughout the offseason as he continues to get stronger, stronger and understand what he's going to go through. I think he'll start in late. I actually think he'll start in Lakewood next year. Yeah. And I think that would actually be good for him. I was I was going to ask you that question because and and I want to go back to Cousins in a minute, but on Moniac, um, I think you're right in that you know if they wanted to play Moniac, Moniac was probably the best bet. And plus, if you're taking a pitcher with one one, you know you got to really know what you're getting there and you got to be really sure about it. And then maybe the Phillies just weren't sure about AJ Puck there, as you were saying. Um, so Moniac just seemed like the safer pick, and I don't think he's a bad pick at this point. I mean, he's still in Lakewood. So I was going to ask, is he going to stay in Lakewood next year because? You're going to have him and Hazley again, and I, maybe Hazley goes to Clearwater to start the year. That's possible. Um, do you think that's the most likely scenario, that Hazley goes up to Clearwater and Moniac stays at center in Lakewood? I think it is. And yeah. even towards the end of the season, and even at, as we come to the season then, you, if you actually look through the box scores, Hazley seems to be handling Lakewood pretty decently, and I think that they would allow him to make that jump just so they can keep him in center field. I still think he's going to end up moving to left field, field long term because I don't think he's, I don't think he's a, I don't think he's as naturally gifted as a center fielder as Mickey Moniak is. Sure. Is, is and Moniak does have more athleticism to stay in that spot, and I think for that time being, for Moniak, I think he'd be good for it. It would have been the same thing. In with J.P. Crawford, Crawford as well, uh, had he not gotten into his scorching hot end of the year that he's been on, on that even if J.P. got good at the end, like Moniac's been better in the last week, but I would have suggested J.P. stay in AAA. A, and I still kind of think that way, by the way, a, a little bit, it, but they're going to try and make him versatile. It's like, sidetrack a little here but <laughs> so and i just think that moniac would benefit is staying in lakewood and improving against both guys and he may only be and give him like two months there and if he's yeah. good against them bring him up to Clearwater, and probably by that time you're promoting hazley the double a anyway right um, give me a pitcher that uh, didn't perform to expectation this year and you were disappointed to see uh, faring out. Well, well, on on a side note, I on a bit of a side note, oh, it's not really a disappointment. It's a disappointment that he still hasn't really gotten a pitch, but Kevin Gowdy mm-hmm. still hasn't pitched, and he just is now going through Tommy John surgery. Can keep waiting for him to go, and I still think he's got a good floor. But we're not going to see him pitch for 2019 now. So it's yeah, rough. So that's rough for him. I I would say the guy I watched last night, Frankie Cologne. And it's not that he's had a bad season. season. It's, pretty, it's been a pretty decent year. But, you know, last year he had a really – he really exploded pretty much us last year out of the gate in Lakewood, that, where he spent all season – you know, he had, you know, his ERA improved this year. He went down from 3.85 to 2.83. And he was focused more on getting outs. But it's how drastic his strikeout rate dropped 
Mm-hmm. Because it went from over 10 per nine to about 6.8 now uh, this season. So he he looks more like a he looks more like a ground ball pitcher. But even if that's the case, because he's got really good breaking stuff, uh, he can manipulate his breaking ball to looking like a because they both have the same break it, it, to either a slow hook or a hard slider, either. And there's not really much difference other than the depth of the pitch, which, which makes it, an, which makes both look like an easy strikeout pitch. But he keeps focusing. But he's such a ground. But he is a ground ball pitcher, pitcher with uh, his heavy fastball, fastball that he's trying to focus on getting outs, and that's fine. But he leaves a lot of pitches. But last night was a good example. He left a lot of pitches elevated. And that took away from his breaking ball. And that took away from his really good breaking ball last night, right, which allowed, which ended up being getting hit as well. And I just think at the end of the day, hey, I see a back end. I see a guy who's on the fringe right now of being a back end starter. Kind of I know, like, in the form of a Nick Pavetta or Zach Eflin. Eflin, I think he's got better. I think he's got better secondary pitch than both of those guys, though. But he might be on the fringe of being a, a very good reliever, though, oh, as well. Oh, instead of the number three starter that was projected out of him early in the season. Yeah, I, it's interesting because, you know, the numbers, his numbers look okay. Uh, you know, the strikeout and walk rates – Strikeout rate could be better. Uh, the walk rate could be a little bit better too. But the numbers from at least to the eye test, fine. But what you're saying is, you know, this is the thing that is most important when you're looking at minor leaguers. If you have to look at their game performance and you're saying he's elevating pitches, that might be okay in double A reading even, but it's not going to work in, in the majors as we've seen with I don't know how many Phillies pitchers this season. So what you're saying about Cologne is that, you know, we shouldn't get too excited. At this point, we got to see if he can sort of harness his stuff and ensure that that breaking ball is becoming uh, the pitch that people are, you know, missing on and people are setting up. They're getting set up yeah. that pitch. Yeah. Yeah, and listen, we've been talking about him for a few years now, and there's been yeah. a lot of argument that he's been the other than Aaron Nola, maybe in 2015, when Aaron Nola was trying to come through the ranks in 2015, he's probably been their best. He's been talked about as maybe their best pitching prospect, and now six, and obviously Sixto has arrived on the scene now. But he's always been the number one or number two pitching prospect in this organization the last three years. And I just don't, and I, and in the two starts that I've seen, and he had a really good start a couple of weeks back when I went. And, but even then, I just felt like, his fastball command was really shaky, icky, and if they weren't swinging at pitches out of the zone on his fastball, he was going to get hit really hard. And he did get hit hard a few times, even in that game. Hmm. And I just think that that's his problem right now. And it's almost the same problem with Sixto. Sixto could get away with it because he gener- he's able to pinpoint on his fastball a little better than Franklin does because Franklin will just lead the pitch over the plate. Uh, let me ask you again about Dylan Cousins, because you mentioned that earlier, and I just wanted to come back on this. Uh, you said something about how maybe with a full year of, a, of a, an outfield set in Philadelphia, it might help him. Obviously, talking about Nick Williams, Aaron Altair, and Odubel Herrera, most likely. 
Last year, Nick Williams, he actually said this, that he thought a little bit too much about wanting to come to Philadelphia because so many spots were getting open and guys being promoted and there was all this chatter, um, and that affected his play. Do you think that maybe, I don't want to like put words in your mouth here, but do you think that maybe that was affecting Dylan this year, that maybe he wanted to get up to Philadelphia and it just wasn't happening and that affected his uh, entire mindset? I think when you're, I think any time when you're like a step away from the majors, haters, you sometimes think about it a little bit more or just trying to get there. Like you're, you're literally knocking on the doorstep once you hit AAA. Yeah. So it, it does affect you a little bit, but for Dylan's case, it's not like he has excellent, you know, like if I'm just comparing Nick Williams to Dylan Cousins, Nick Williams has really good bat-to-ball skills. Mm-hmm. So even if he strikes out 24, 25% of the time, I'm in walks at a low rate. Dylan Cousins gets his walks, and he's consistently walked 10-plus percent the last few years. Here's, but he's not very good at putting the ball in play, and that's and that's the problem with him. So as, as much as you want to believe that maybe that somewhat plays a part into it, you also have to remember, Aaron, at this point, especially when Dylan was getting hot early on in the season in May, Aaron Altair was playing very well. So at that point, they already had two outfield positions, and Nick Williams was considered ahead of Dylan Cousins anyway. Yeah. So, it, I, I don't think it was really. I don't think pressure. Pressure maybe had a little bit. Always has a little bit to do with how players struggles, struggles. But it's not every. But you. It always comes back down to skill set and how you adjust to the league. Team. And I. And I just don't see it. And I just can't see it with Dylan Cousins. Like, J.B. Crawford adjusted, like, big time. And I wrote about that six weeks ago Oh, oh, with how he, how he changed his mechanics and got, and got more aggressive early in counts. And that's when you know you're a very good ball player or you're going to be a big league ball player. And Dylan just – as much power as he has, maybe adjustment to make himself a power hitter, but he's not made the adjustment to make himself at least an average major league hitter. Well, certainly a lot to think about as we get into the off season with Dylan Cousins and with all the other guys you mentioned earlier. And I'm sure you'll be writing a lot of stuff at philliesminorthoughts.com. And, you know, go check it out, please. Uh, Jeff, there's great stuff there. Uh, Jeff, we'll, we'll probably have you on in the off season, but uh, until then, uh, enjoy the end of the the regular season here, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Tim, always a pleasure. All right, so I'm back with Corey Sharp with PhilliesNation.com. We're going to talk a little bit about one player who has had a really tough season trying to be consistent, but it just hasn't worked out, and that's Jared Eikhoff. Corey has a piece on philliesnation.com that came out last night, Sunday night. Uh, Jared is now on the 60-day DL. He is out for the rest of the year. Corey, what was your sort of uh, – when you looked at Jared for the season, what, what did you find as really the biggest problem for him? Um, well, he was very uh, erratic, volatile, um, as I used that word in the piece. Um, his, he had command issues. Yeah, in 197 in the third innings last year, he walked 
just 42 batters. This year in 100 and um, I'm sorry. 128. 128 innings. He walked 53 guys. So, you know, that's uh, obviously a huge difference. And he wasn't throwing first pitch strikes uh, like he normally did, like he normally does. In 2015, in like short cameo up at the big leagues, he threw first pitch strikes 65%. And they've gone down ever since, even last year. 61%, and this year was uh, just over 56% uh, first pitch strikes. And again, his, his same demons with um, the second and third time through the order, he, he gets worse and worse throughout the game. You know, the second time through, 284, the third time, 321. Um, so still still not good on that end, and he's regressed um, with his command. Yeah, the, the the first pitch strike thing is really the, the, the thing that kind of stands out for me because Eikhoff is one of those pitchers that really needs to get that first pitch strike. He still has that fastball-curveball combination, and the changeup still isn't uh, the kind of pitch that can get a guy out. It can be used as sort of a show-me pitch against left-handed hitters, but it still gets hit a little bit, and it doesn't have the best movement. So he needs to get that first pitch fastball strike in order to set up the curveball and kind of work the guy in the count. Um, I wonder how much of that has to do, and I don't want to like belabor this point because we talked about him a little bit earlier, but how much of it has to do with Cameron Rupp? Because we've all heard about his pitch framing and how poor it is. Do you think that that is a little bit of a factor into why he's not getting those first pitch strikes? Um, I mean, I, I don't think so. I, I, I just think his stuff just isn't, isn't imposing. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I wrote in the piece, he's, he throws in the low 90s, uh, he's got a, a good curveball. I, I would call that a good curveball. Uh, but his two other pitches aren't, you know, they're decent. He has a decent slider and a decent changeup. Now, for me, it's like when you see Aaron Nola's curveball, like it has more, it, it's sharper and it's more lateral. Um, even though he has a good curveball, Icop, it, it's it's still pretty hittable because to me it's 12-6. It's really slow. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know. I, I just don't think he, he just has the stuff, really. I mean, yeah, so, that's what... So, so what does that mean for, for his future? Because I know you had kind of raised the question in the piece that, you know, is he going to be part of this rotation next year? And look, nobody who has really kind of come out and wanted to take that place in the rotation, you know, we've seen some good outings. Mark Leiter, uh, Ben Lively's been okay. But other than that, you know, go down the list and they're all terrible. So mm-hmm. it seems as if if you're going to put a second guy in this rotation after Nola, who, by the way, Nola's been up and down at times this year, Eikhoff is probably the guy. But does that mean he's automatically in the rotation next year? Or do the Phillies make some sort of a widespread, you know, cleanup and purge the, the entire staff that they have now? Yeah, I mean, if you're going by just the starters from this year, yes, Eikhoff would be in it next year. But I, I don't think that means he's completely pure i mean like i said i think did we see his ceiling last year um that's kind of the question i raised you know so i really don't feel like he he's secured himself completely i i don't think it's the worst thing in the world if he's here um i, I think he's like he's more of a back-end starter a fourth or fifth uh starter on, on a good team um so like i said i mean i wouldn't have a problem if he's here but i, I definitely think you can upgrade from him but I also think there, there's worse pitchers than him too so you know what I mean yeah I mean he's looks like the kind of pitcher who I think could have a career renaissance later on a la Jay Happ 
someone who he's pretty smart. He, he's he's durable on the mound, uh, and he knows how to pitch to guys. I mean, he's not he's not just throwing up the fastball and the curveball and saying, "Can you hit this?" I mean, he's got to work with what he has. So to me, he looks like the kind of guy who, in a couple of years, could reinvent himself as a pitcher with a couple of different offerings that are more mediocre to slightly above average, and use the strike zone as his friend. Um, but right now, he looks more like you know a guy who's either going to get hit around really by a good team, or he's going to get a couple of good calls in the game and some good defense, and he's going to have a good start. Um, so I'm with you. I think he's probably good to be like a four or five starter next year, but. I don't know. I go back to the pitching coach of this. You know, Bob McClure has had a really rough year with these guys. I, I feel like he, more than anybody, could really use a change of scenery with the pitching coach and who he's working with on a regular basis on this team. Yeah, agreed. And and we'll go back, I believe it was May, when, when Vince Velasquez said he, he's got to do it himself. I think it was a start after a start in um, in Pittsburgh. He said he's running around with a chicken without his head. Yeah. No, no, no player should feel that way if – if they had confidence in their coach. So, uh, yeah, I think a, a change of scenery would do everybody good. Yeah, and, and I don't want to, you know, go further with this, but just I look at the guys who have stuff on this squad, who have, like, just natural great stuff, like Luis Garcia, Hector yeah. Neris, uh, Nola for the most part. These guys are getting it done, and it seems like they're relying on that stuff to make it happen, whereas guys who either have the stuff but can't quite get it in control like Vince Velasquez or Nick Pavetta or guys who don't have stuff whatsoever like Jared Eikhoff or maybe Ben Lively have struggled at times because they just don't know how to pitch the guys. So yeah, I think, I think that's it. I think at the end of the day, someone might have to go from this coaching staff and McClure looks like the most possible candidate there. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Well, We'll see what happens with Eikhoff. And the, uh, the piece is up at PhilliesNation.com. Uh, Corey, you raised some really good points about Eikhoff's uh, current season, how it ended, and what the future might look like. We might have to see another weird pitching rotation next year for a little bit. Um, Nola, Eikhoff, Velasquez, and pick your poison. But at least the offense will be looking better, it looks like. So that's a good thing. Uh, Corey, yeah. Corey, we'll uh, talk to you later on. Thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. My thanks to Corey Sharp and Jeff Israel for coming on the Phillies Nation podcast. Also, thanks to BenSound.com for the music for the podcast. That's the end of Hour 1 of the Phillies Nation podcast. We're going to go into Hour 2 in a moment uh, where we have some great conversations with some Philadelphia athletics experts. Uh, William C. Cachetis is on as well as Bruce Kuklick. They've written some great books about the Philadelphia athletics over the years, and we have some great conversations with them coming up talking about Shide Park and the history of that beautiful palace that once was, and also talking about just the history of the athletics, uh, some of the great teams that they put together in the 1920s and uh, the 1910s, and also about Connie Mack and what he was like, and uh, just some great stuff altogether about how the athletics really defined the city in a lot of ways early on in the 20th century. That is the end of the first hour again of the Phillies Nation podcast. Glad that you can join us for it. Let's move on. Hour two, coming up.
Welcome to Hour 2 of the Phillies Nation Podcast. I'm Tim Malcolm, the Editorial Director of philliesnation.com. You like that stop short, right? That weird... Maybe you don't. If you don't, it's fine. Welcome to Hour 2. As I said earlier in the podcast, we're doing a two-hour podcast because we have a lot to cover. We talked about the Phillies earlier in Hour 1 with Corey Sharp and Jeff Israel. Thanks again to them for coming on. Hour 2, we're talking about the Philadelphia Athletics. And that's because the Oakland Athletics are coming into town at the end of next week. It's the first time the A's will be in town since June of 2011. Back then, the Phillies won two of three, thanks to a walk-off win on a Friday night and a Sunday afternoon win where Roy Halladay pitched extremely well against Josh Altman. My God, how things are so different from 2011 right now. Totally different. Completely different team. The A's are pretty, pretty different, too. Uh, both teams are not good. The A's are quite bad this year. The Phillies, of course, are the worst team in baseball. So not a lot to look at with any playoff contention, obviously. But we're looking at young players because, as I said earlier in the podcast, this might be J.P. Crawford part of the lineup and playing every day. Hoskins, obviously. Williams, Alfaro. All these young names that are finally finding themselves in the lineup. We'll see how they play. Also, though, the historical context of the series is pretty important. I mean, the Athletics, before they were in Oakland, were in Kansas City, but before that were Philadelphia up until the early 1950s. And I was lucky to talk to two guys who know a lot about the Athletics, who've done a lot of research about them, historians, writers themselves, William C. Cachetis and Bruce Cooklick. Both guys have done some really great work about the A's. William C. Cachetis has three books on the A's, Connie Mack's 29th Triumph, Money Pitcher, Chief Bender, and the Tragedy of Indian Assimilation, and uh, the Philadelphia Athletics, which is a book, uh, uh, Images of History book. And then Bruce Cooklick has done a book on Shy Park called To Everything a Season, and it's a great book about what Shy Park meant to Philadelphians. The good, the bad, the ugly. It got uglier as it deteriorated through its later years, and the A's could not spend money on its repair and its renovation. It's a really good book, and, and, and these guys have done great work keeping history alive, uh, making sure the athletics are part of the tapestry of Philadelphia baseball and sports and really just Philadelphia life. The athletics had a very important part in Philadelphia life. Ask anybody, and these two guys coming up will tell you the same thing, ask anybody in the 40s and the 30s and the 20s, the A's were the team in Philadelphia. I mean, they were the number one team. If you were watching baseball in Philadelphia, you were watching the Athletics. They had great teams in the teens. They had great teams in the 20s, rivaling the New York Yankees and the Bronx Bombers and the, the Murderer's Row team of the late 20s. These were great teams. The 1915 Phillies and the 1950 Phillies are the only good Phillies teams between that period. It was all Athletics. You had guys like Jimmy Fox, obviously, Al Simmons, Really, Hall of Fame quality, incredible, legendary players in Philadelphia. Lefty Grove, nineteen uh, during the during the nineteen twenties. Lefty Grove was incredible. Great teams, and then through the nineteen thirties and forties, the A's started to slip. They had a very bad team. Phillies weren't very good either. But finally, in the late forties, the Phillies started to get good. They had a farm system. They had the money, and guys like Richie Ashburn. Robin Roberts started to come alive in the system. And you finally had a good Phillies team in 1948, 49, 50. 50, of course, the year that they got to the World Series. 
by that time the A's were done. I mean, there was there was no way they were staying in Philadelphia, and they were finally taken to Kansas City. But the A's really were the team, the gold standard of Philadelphia baseball up until the 1940s. And that's what we talk about here coming up. It's a very, very interesting history. And as the A's come in, it's obviously a totally different franchise, but you get sentimental thinking about a city that had two teams, that had two very different teams, too. The Phillies were very rustabout and... Uh, uh, not good, but they're, they're terrible teams. Didn't really value keeping the team good for a long time. And then you had the Athletics. They were a powerhouse at times. Again, as I said, rivaling the Yankees in the 20s. A great team. Some would say that they were as good as the Yankees of the 20s. And William C. Cachetis talks about that quite a bit here coming up. It's a shame that they're not remembered in the same way that the Yankees are remembered of those years. I mean, you have... Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig on those teams, you're going to be remembered in a certain way. But Jimmy Fox, Al Simmons, those are incredible players. And the A's should get more of their due. Uh, the Philadelphia A's Historical Society used to be open, now it's closed. But there is still people who are trying to keep the legacy of the athletics alive in Philadelphia. And those two guys, two of the guys who do that, are with me in a moment. So some great conversations. I hope you stay tuned and listen because we go really deep about what the A's were like in Philadelphia and what Shy Park was like. Listen, enjoy. Here we go. I have with me William C. Cachetis, who is an author who's written three books about the Philadelphia athletics. He is a historian and a teacher, and he joins me now on the Phillies Nation podcast. Uh, welcome to the podcast, William. Thanks for having me, Timothy. I appreciate it. No problem. So, uh, first off, how did you get into uh, researching the Philadelphia Athletics? Were you a fan growing up, or were you sort of sort of just knew about the Athletics growing up, or anything like that? And how did you get into it? I was a, a Phillies fan from 1964 on. Enough said okay. on that year. Uh, however, uh, growing up in Philadelphia and being accustomed to a losing baseball tradition, I had always heard that Philadelphia once had a team that could have easily been the New York Yankees, and that team was the Athletics. And I just became obsessed with that, uh, really, in, in my teens. And then in one of those down periods for the Phillies of the 1990s, I was teaching at the William Penn Charter School, which is known for a, its baseball program, among other things. And I started saying to the players, I'm tired of the Phillies. I, <laughs> I want to follow a winning team. And so what I did, I taught history at the school, and so what I did was I I actually went to the library, went on microfilm, and copied off from microfilm the front sports page of every day from the Philadelphia Public Ledger of the 1929 season. And I'd go into class and I'd say, wow, these guys are great. I think this guy, Jimmy Fox, really has a future. And this Cochran, he's the kind of catcher I really like. And the kids really got into it. Wow. So it was from that kind of angle when the Phillies were doing so poorly. And as I was a history teacher already, going back into the history of baseball and getting my students interested in it too. And that's how 
my first book on the A's came to fruition, Connie Mack's 29 Triumph, and it is about that second dynasty of his from 1929 to 1931. That's amazing that you went back and started to kind of each day bring up new things about that team. It's like there, there's Twitter accounts that sort of rehash old teams. There's a Twitter account that rehashes the 2008 Phillies, and every day you're following the team as if it was 2008. So you're you're way ahead of the curve with that kind of thing, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that was 19, that was what, 1997, 1998 that I did that. Uh, So, yeah, I was ahead of the curve back then. So, okay, start with that 1929 team in your book, Connie Mack's 29 Triumph. I mean, talk about an incredible team that gets lost in history because everybody talks about the Yankees of that era and Babe Ruth and Luke Gehrig and all those great players. But this 1929 team had a murderer's row of their own of three great players. I mean, Jimmy Fox, you know, was just one of those guys. What, what Did you know a lot about that era of athletics baseball before you started your research, or, or were you kind of uncovering as you were going along following every day and you couldn't believe what you were seeing? No, I, I really didn't know much about that era. I The 1920s were interesting uh, to me just as a historian, uh, but I did not know much about that era of baseball. I knew it was the Roaring Twenties and the Lively Ball era and the era of Ruth and Gehrig. But I think what really fascinated me, again, was the fact that here you had this team, the Philadelphia Athletics, and to be very honest with you, what I argue in that book, Connie Mack's 29 Triumph, is that although the New York, the 1927 New York Yankees is widely regarded as the best team in the history of the game, the 1929 A's really can lay claim to that for a couple of reasons. Number one, they were the team that unseated the 27 Yankees because they competed against the very same team, essentially. Number two, the true sign of greatness is the ability to repeat. And they had a three-year dynasty. And if you compare the 29-31 A's to the 26 through 28 Yankees, which was their dynasty, that A's dynasty is better in terms of pitching, in terms of defense, in terms of bench, and the difference in offense is, I think, maybe five or six uh, percentage points in terms of the batting, because you had a one-two punch in Fox and Simmons that was comparable to Ruth and Gehrig. They really were. Uh, and, and that's my argument in the book, that the 29 through 31 A's are the best team, the best dynasty in the history of baseball. Well, the 1929 team finished 104 and 46, which if you take that into today's game, it's a staggering win percentage. Uh, they scored, I think, 901 runs. I'm looking here. They allowed 615 runs. Unbelievable numbers. And as you said, those players... Jimmy Fox and Al Simmons. Fox uh, hit 354, 463, 625, and Simmons went 365, 398, 642. It's amazing the, the kind of talent that was on display with that team. And then the pitching. I mean, Lefty Grove was an amazing pitcher of his own right, Hall of Famer. No, a- absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we, we, we miss about that era is that the power hitters were also good hitters for average. I mean, they just weren't power hitters like like right. you see today. 
and also the the pitching of the A's gets the short shrift. Yeah, Lefty Grove was the ace uh, of that team, but you also had uh, you know George Earnshaw, who was a marvelous pitcher, uh, is as I guess the number two guy. Uh, you had um, uh, uh, God, what's his name now? It escapes me. The uh, the forty six year old wonder who was really oh. their major reliever, John Picus Quinn, yep, right? Who, Quinn, yeah. who, who Father Time, who who pitched forever. Um, you know, it, it was a great staff, and then you yeah. had these guys, uh, the Submariner, um, and now his name is escaping me. The guy that Max started against the Cubs in the opening game of the 29 World Series. Talking about Rube Wahlberg? No, Wahlberg was the first dynasty. Okay. I'm sorry, the name. That's okay. But but you know you had a solid pitching staff. Yeah. I'm sorry, you said Rube Wahlberg. Wahlberg was not Waddell. Yeah. Yeah, it was It was Wahlberg. It wasn't Waddell. But yeah, they were great pitching, great pitching, yeah. great hitting, great power hitting. Um, and that team, that second dynasty, was coming on the heels of some really bad athletic teams, which is sort of the story of the athletics, is that they were either really, really good or they were really, really bad. And that seems to kind of ebb and flow with Connie Mack, who I didn't realize until I started reading up on the A's a lot that Connie Mack really wasn't just he wasn't just influential but he was the he was the organization he was he was part owner i didn't even realize he was part owner but he was part owner he was a manager of course uh he ran the front office i mean he was everything with that organization lived and died with him team right um actually when mac came to philadelphia in 1901 uh with the new american league uh, he owned, uh, I think, a small percentage. Uh, George uh, or Benjamin Scheib was the primary owner, uh, the namesake of, of Scheib Park, of course. But what was so fascinating to me about Mac is that he anticipated many of the business uh, practices of modern-day baseball. For example, he knew that if the A's uh, were constantly winning – that Philadelphians would get bored with it, and he wouldn't put the fannies in the seats. His gate wouldn't be as big as if they were a contending team. Mm -hmm. And he found that out, and that's why he sold off his players in uh, 19 uh, after the 1914 season. Actually, he sold them off for two reasons, the one I just mentioned, but also – uh, there was a lot of suspicion that the, the 14 A's threw the World Series to the miracle, quote-unquote, miracle Boston Braves. Uh, in 29, he learned his lesson, though, because you don't have a fire sale like that. Uh, he had the fire sale in the 1916 A's were arguably the worst team ever in baseball history, losing over 100 games. So when he broke up the 29-31 dynasty, he did it gradually, uh, so his team would be in the hunt for the pennant, and the gate would be good, um, but, you know, there was no fire sale, so they dropped to, to last place again. And that practice, I mean, I think you see that with Jeffrey Loria and the Florida Marlins, who did that, um, I think, what after the 97 season, 
Oh, after mm-hmm. the Marlins won the World Series, he had his fire sale. Yeah, and uh, you know, and and then he did it again more recently. Yep. Uh, that's one of the reasons I think he's just getting rid of the team now. Uh, but this this kind of practice was invented by Mac. I mean, he was a very very shrewd businessman. Yeah, and and I wonder, you know, because he was in the helm for the for the A's for fifty years, and it was actually right. in his fiftieth season when he got canned. Um, was it? What did he have? Did he have too much of a grasp on that? franchise was was it too was was he micromanaging too much should there have been more room for other people to kind of come in there and have other opinions because it seems like his his style as it got on you know past that second dynasty it, it wore thin and 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 they ran out of money obviously but it seemed like they, they could have used an injection of more more you know voices in the front office yeah i think you're spot on 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 that tim um I do want to point out one thing before I get back to that issue. Mac was very unique in the sense that he had a championship dynasty during the dead ball era because mm-hmm. his first dynasty was 1910 to 1914. And then he reinvented himself as a manager to be able to have a second championship dynasty in the lively ball era. So that's really kind of his uniqueness. But you're right, 50 years in one place is an awful long time. And he knew he was slipping, um, you know, by by the 1940s. So what he would do is he would hire former players to manage the team. And they would be, uh, you know, although he was the figurehead and had the name of manager, it would be a coach uh, mm-hmm. uh, that that would actually manage the team. Um he did that with Eddie Juiced, uh, who was a, a player coach in uh, the 1950s. He did that with Jimmy Dykes uh, in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, but where the Mack family ran, ran into problems, they were sole owners by the 1950s. And there were three sons. And what Mack said to the sons from his first marriage was that, uh, because they were constantly feuding, uh, Connie uh, Sr. with Connie Jr., and then Roy and I forget the other son's name. Um, those two, uh, you know, were feuding against the father and the younger son. So Connie Sr. finally said, look, either you sell out to us or you buy us out. Mm-hmm. And the two boys bought him out, and they couldn't make a go of it, and they ended up selling to Arnold Johnson, who moved the club to Kansas City, where Charlie Finley eventually bought it and then moved it to Oakland. Um, but it was poor management, and I really think that Mac had become so emotionally attached to the club that he couldn't live without it, and he really should have left pretty much after the 1948 season. He should have given it up uh, to someone who was much more capable um, because we, we, could have, we could have been the New York Yankees of baseball re, re we really could have been had Mac given it up earlier. What what kind of person was Connie Mac? Not not just as a as a baseball man, but what kind of person was he in your research? Uh he was a very ardent Catholic, Irish Catholic. Uh a person that uh even though his passion was baseball, he was an educator, uh a teacher coach. Because what he would do is he would take these 
uh, colorful, dim-witted roustabouts like Rube Waddell, uh, who really was developmentally delayed. And he he would try to, uh, you know, mentor them. Um, Another guy was Shoeless Joe Jackson. You know, here's a guy who was illiterate, uh, had a very coarse way about him, and, and Mac, you know, hired a tutor for him to teach him how to read. Uh, he had a big heart. Uh, there was also a hunchback bat boy by the name of Louis Van Zelst. It's hard to believe that they did this back then. You'd never do it today because uh, you'd have everybody, including the ACLU, on your back. But what what the players would do is they'd go and rub Lewis's hunch back for good luck before they went up to the bat. Goodness, and, God. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, and uh, but but you know, here's a guy that Connie Mack gave a job to because he was a a kid who was becoming a juvenile delinquent, and you know, Mack had a heart. Uh, he everyone in the neighborhood around 21st and Lehigh knew him. He knew everybody there. If someone was down on their luck, he'd hire him for a job, whether it was as a vendor uh, or, you know, a custodian. He really had a big heart, and and he really looked at that club as his extended family. I wanted to ask you, because you wrote also a book about Chief Bender uh, called Money Pitcher, Chief Bender, and the Tragedy of Indian Assimilation. Um, He was part of that first dynasty in the teens, a great pitcher, uh, his name wasn't Chief. It was actually Charles. Um, and that's, I think, something that you probably, you know, talk about a lot in your book about the name and, and, and how, you know, all the things that he faced uh, as a pitcher in the in the major leagues. Talk a little bit about him and, and what his struggle was uh, at that time. Uh, the first Native American pitcher of any note was Louis Sokalexis, and he played for the Cleveland Spiders. Uh, and he was such a phenomenal player that eventually the Spiders changed their name to the Cleveland Indians. And you know the rest of the story with Chief mm-hmm. Wahoo. Um, but uh, Chief Bender was really that kind of second wave of Native American Indians. Uh, he was educated at the Carlisle uh, Indian Industrial School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Uh, which has been in the news lately because of the, uh, you know, the, the, the children's graves and uh, exhuming those bodies and taking them back to their tribal homes in Oklahoma. Um, but Bender, uh, as well as many other Native Americans from from the West, uh, came to Carlisle and they were forcibly assimilated into American culture. Uh, the the motto there was. Kill the Indian to save the man, hmm. uh, which is hauntingly familiar to the only good Indian is a dead Indian. Hmm. Um, but Bender uh, never returned to the reservation after that. He he did assimilate into American life, and he was not treated very well. Um, when he started playing for the Philadelphia Athletics, uh, people in the stands would uh, scream, uh, war chants at him. Uh, he was called chief because he was an Indian. And what I argue in that book is that there were some very hard feelings uh, on Bender's part towards uh, not only the fans, but the press caricatured him 
there are some very racist cartoons that appeared in the Philadelphia press, the public ledger in particular, as well as the early sporting news. Um, and, and, and this really irked it, it Bender. Now, although there's no smoking gun of a primary source document to, uh, you know, to show this, the circumstantial evidence that Bender threw the games he pitched in that 1914 World Series is pretty convincing um, because he was Max Money Pitcher in earlier championship series. Money Pitcher meaning the pitcher that Mac went to when he needed a win. Right. Now, that's to be distinguished from a guy who had more wins, like Gettysburg Eddie Plank. It means that Bender was the guy who can really shut down the offense of another team. And he just pitched nothing, nothing to his potential, nothing like he had before in that 1914 World Series. And I argue that this was his way of getting back. Um and after that, Mac broke up that dynasty. So, how do you uh, how do you go about doing the research? Because these are players that you're writing about from the early part of the 20th century. Um, I assume that there is, you know, like you like you were finding the microfilm and you were finding the old stories, you know, in the library. Is that most of what you're doing? Are there other sources where you can find research about the Philadelphia Athletics? Yeah, um, you know, it's a good question. Let me tell you, it's a heck of a lot uh, less expensive than the books I'm writing now because I, I've got to get – I have to have my books now vetted by by a lawyer uh, because I'm writing things, you know, about uh, uh, young amateur baseball players who committed suicide after they got addicted to steroids in Suicide Squeeze and you got to protect your proverbial back on that, so my manuscript has to be vetted. I, I write on people who are still alive, like Dick Allen, uh, the 1993 Phillies, and the last thing you want is a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so writing, uh, writing history is much safer, and it's preferential. It's probably one of the reasons I'm going back to it. Um, <laughs> but But... With the Philadelphia Athletics, uh, yes, you do a lot of library research because so few people are around that, uh, you know, even followed those teams, and the principals are now all dead. Uh, I was lucky when I was writing the first book in 1999 that uh, some members of the Mack family, uh, his children, were still around. And I had the opportunity to interview them. I also went into uh, the Shy Park neighborhood and found whatever residents uh, were still there, who stayed there. They were children um, back at that time and interviewed them. Um, but in terms of, you know, oral interviews, it was, you know, pretty slim pickings. So you basically have to uh, go to the National Baseball Hall of Fame Library. You go to the Philadelphia Public Library, look on microfilm. Hall of Fame, by the way, has marvelous records on the Philadelphia Athletics. Um, hmm. and, and there was an organization called the Philadelphia Athletics Historical Society, which is now defunct, but they were of tremendous help 
because uh, Ernie Montella and Ted Taylor, who began the organization, had some wonderful images, uh, and and they really served as a uh, consortium uh, for a lot of A's fans and actually family members of the players, uh, because they all a lot of these people joined, and they would put me in touch with them. Uh, and unfortunately, you don't have that resource anymore because uh, that that historical society no longer exists. And uh, you know what we do have of the A's is either the Atwater Kent, which is now cons- uh, called the Philadelphia History Museum, uh, or you know some of the stuff is at Spikes Trophies in Northeast Philadelphia, which has a Philadelphia A's Hall of Fame section there. Um, so. It's kind of difficult, and and the main man who has done done the most writing on on the A's is of course Norman Mocked. He wrote the the uh, three volume um, biography of of Connie Mack, and you know those are voluminous. I mean, there's <laughs> he, there's no stone that was yeah. left unturned by Mock, and Mock Mocked did have access to some of the players from the 40s and 50s. Okay. Um, so, so those books are wonderful. Well, certainly you're doing a great job of helping to preserve the history and keep that alive and ensure that people are learning more about this very fascinating part of Philadelphia baseball history that we hope doesn't get lost, and I don't think it will. Um, but your books, again, are Connie Matt's 29 Triumphs, Money Pitcher, Chief Bender, and the Tragedy of Indian Assimilation, and the Philadelphia Athletics, which is an Images of Sports book that you can find all on Amazon, I believe, right now. Uh, William C. Kishadis, how can people get in touch with you or find out more about you on the web? Um, I have two ways to get in, in touch. I do have a website um, titled History Live. It's at historylive.net, and that has uh, you know biography. It also has uh, a, a list and, and endorsements and descriptions of all the books I've written, baseball, non-baseball. And then three weeks ago, I just started a podcast. So I'm on Facebook. The name of the podcast is Philadelphia Baseball, Past, Present, and Personal. I had Mike Schmidt on as my uh, premier show guest. Uh, Howie Bedell was on the second podcast. And next week, we're going to uh, upload... Uh, Goose Gossage and Belton Bill Melton, who talk about Dick Allen and his time with the Chicago White Sox. So that's a weekly podcast, and and they can see that on Facebook at Philadelphia Baseball, Past, Present, and Personal. Great. To search for that on Facebook, that's great. We'll have to listen to the Mike Schmidt one, uh, especially. I'm sure you got some really great nuggets of uh, of information, some great stories out of uh, your guests so far. So. Um, really great stuff. Thank you so much, William, for coming on the Civilization Podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Tim. I appreciate it. And now I want to talk about the place where the Philadelphia Athletics played for so many years, Shy Park. Later, of course, became Connie Mack Stadium. And with me right now is Bruce Cookwick, who wrote a book on Shy Park and the Philadelphia Athletics. It's called To Everything a Season. Uh, Bruce, welcome to the Philadelphia Podcast. I uh, Tell me about what, what the building itself of Shy Park was like. It was built in the early part of the 20th century, and I know when it was, yeah. when, it, when it opened, it, it was, you know, considered this grand structure, right? 
Right. Uh, it's one of the classic uh, ballparks that was built oh, between uh, 1909 and 1920. Uh, it reminds me uh, a little of uh, Wrigley Field, which I love and which I go to regularly. Uh, a little less of Fenway Park, but it's the, it was the same kind of stadium. Uh, held 30, 35,000 people initially, and actually is the first of these classic ballparks uh, made from uh, concrete and steel, uh, and what was designed at the time to be a palace. I mean, if you look at the ballparks before that, they're all wooden structures, and in fact, one of the issues with the old ballparks is that they sometimes they would collapse mm -hmm. uh, because there were too many people involved, or that there would be a fire. Uh, there was a serious fire, for example, uh, in the late 19th century at the Phillies ballpark. Uh, so these are a real major advance uh, in uh, the technology of building uh uh, large stadiums uh, and the place in addition to being uh, considered a palace at the time uh, actually sold a variety of refreshments uh, mm. you know that they had places you know you could actually walk to go to a, a luncheonette or cafeteria and buy a variety of foods and not just you know your peanuts and cracker jack uh, so it was a, a big deal. It had a huge parking lot underneath at one time for people to bring their cars to and park. Uh, and it was also located in uh, a, a really kind of interesting working-class neighborhood. If you, of course, Wrigleyville, where Wrigley Field is now, is much upgraded. But Wrigleyville was originally a working-class neighborhood, and certainly so was the area surrounding Shy Park. So it gave jobs to to all these <clears throat> excuse me jobs to all these people in the neighborhood. Uh, it gave uh, there were rooming houses there uh, that uh, that players. There were uh, uh, in prosperous times for the uh, for the Philadelphia A's. Uh, there were uh, people who sold. Uh, Seats from their houses adjacent to the ballpark, just like Wrigley Field today. Yep. Uh, so there was a whole kind of enterprise that uh, that was that was created when uh, the Philadelphia Athletics built this. And then, in addition, and this is something that old timers uh, who were at the park will remember: uh, by the 1940s and 50s, you're in a densely urban neighborhood, and you would go into this ballpark. And all of a sudden, there would be this majestic uh, uh, field, uh, this green grass, this uh, kind of uh, bucolic uh, countryside in the middle of the city. So it really was a spectacular venue. Yeah, I mean, I, I had talked to, I think, Dan Baker, who had talked about he was a kid, and he used to, uh, you know, watch people's cars. You know, they parked in the general vicinity, and at that point, it was County Knox Stadium. But people would park to go to the game, and he would actually, uh, you know, take money to watch the car so that people wouldn't steal the car. I mean, that's, oh, yeah. that's kind of what was going on there. That was, the, it was in, well, that was another way that the park supported some kind of employment in the neighborhood. Yeah. In fact, this, it's 
used to be a family store. You would go and park, and some kid would come up to you and say, a quarter to watch your car. And <laughs> you would pay the quarter because if you didn't, you would go back and your car would have an ice pick in the tire. Uh, and I remember when my 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 family and I went, we used to park. Uh, the, the ballpark was located at uh, 20th and Lehigh in near North Philly. And we, would, we, we used to park like 20 blocks away, way far away from the park, and then walk to the park because my father refused to pay 15 cents or a quarter to have a kid watch the car. Sure. <laughs> of course, we were also... Uh, just to continue this line of stories, uh, it was 75 cents, if you can believe it or not, to get into the park. Uh, and if you took a family on a limited budget, it wasn't a matter of spending 200 bucks at the ballpark as it is today. It was a matter of spending three or four dollars. Yeah. Uh, and we would always buy seats behind these huge steel beams, obstructed vision seats, they were called. And instead of being 75 cents, they were 50 cents. So my vision of watching the, uh, the Philadelphia Athletics play and even later the Philadelphia Phillies was kind of scrunching my neck out from behind a, uh, a steel girder to see what was going on. It was a real experience, very, very different from watching baseball today at, uh, at Citizens Bank Park or comparable places across the United States. Yeah, the one experience that I had uh, in an old, well, I've been up into Wrigley, but i also been to Fenway, and the first time I actually went mm-hmm. to Fenway, I sat in an obstructed seat behind the pole. Yes. <laughs> it was such yeah. an odd yeah. feeling. <laughs> but um, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. talk about talk about some of the some of the you know the, the kooky things about watching a game at Chibe. You know, what, what was the experience like? Were there anything anything outrageous that you wouldn't find in a park today besides the obstructed seat? Uh yeah, several things. First of all, there were uh, people who were uh, uh, designated voices uh, who would sit at Shad Park and boo the umpires and/or opposing players. Okay. Uh, uh, and then, and then soon, Philadelphia had a reputation, which it still has. And it's one of the interesting things if you're a historian: how does a town get this reputation, and why did it? people in town believe the way they do or act the way they do. But Philadelphia had this reputation as being an absolutely uh, frantic uh, town in terms of its uh, of its fans uh, who hated not only the other team uh, but also hated their own team. So yeah. uh, a couple of examples. When uh, Ty Cobb, who played for Detroit, one of the great baseball players of all time, came to Philadelphia on a couple occasions, he got death death threats from Philadelphia Mm -hmm. fans. And uh, and, uh, uh, they had a station of ring cops around the outfield where he, the outfield in Chai Park where he played. I mean, not that that would have stopped Shooter, but uh, there were real uh, people who just kind of went uh, absolutely crazy. uh, the Philadelphia A's had an outfielder named Gus Zerniel, who was a home run hitter, uh, but who also sucked out a lot in the late 40s, early 50s. And one game, he fell and broke his leg. And as they ca- carried uh, 
uh, him out, everybody booed him because he had just struck out on his last dot dot. So Philadelphia fans have had for a long time this reputation of being, you know, the most raucous fans uh, in baseball. Uh, It took a long time before the team was allowed to sell liquor uh, in the ballparks. Uh, The state of Pennsylvania uh, had something called the Blue Laws, which prevented the sale of uh, real well, you still see it today, and the, yeah. the fact that uh, Pennsylvania has state stores and not liquor sold everywhere as in other states, but they had particularly uh, stringent rules for the ballparks, and it took a long time before they were able to sell beer there, and that's all they ever sold there. But once they did sell it there, uh, they had a lot of trouble with. Uh, with drunks, uh, and because of the fans were so raucous, they used to uh, shell uh, the umpires, especially with beer bottles. Uh, and uh, one one terrific story uh, occurred before they got the the the, the uh, ownership got its beer license. Uh, the 1929 World Series, uh, and its first game was attended by then President of the United States, Herbert Hoover. Mm-hmm. And as he was squired in with various dignitaries and the mayor of the city and everybody else, you would expect, you know, as happens today, if, you know, if uh, I remember when uh, uh, the second George Bush went to Yankee Stadium for the 2001 World Series and when Obama yeah. showed up. Uh, at various ones, everybody cheers and a lot of flag ra- raving and everything like that. When Herbert Hoover showed up at the first game of the 29 World Series, the fans stood up and yelled, we want beer, we want beer. Uh, so uh, this is, this is a, the place is not different from the other great ballparks, all of which except Wrigley and Fenway have, have been torn down. Uh, but what went on there, I think, does uh, exemplify uh, what urban what urban America was like in most of the 20th century, and, and the way kind of baseball kind of was a place, uh, or professional baseball was the place where you could find all of these things which comprise modern American culture. You know, the mm-hmm. good stuff and the bad stuff. Uh, I guess. Uh, what I'd like to say, too, uh, is you know, that uh, the A's were always in Philadelphia for the first part of the 20th century, the premier team. If mm. you were uh, uh, if you were Philadelphian, you basically were uh, an A's fan. I had an uncle who was a Phillies fan, and uh, he was – Uncle Buck was regarded as a dummy. Uh, uh, you know, not only did he uh, did he root for the Phillies, but as my mother said, you know, you have to carry a, a, a roll of toilet paper around with them the whole time. Uh, <laughs> I won't go into that any further, but that's, that's what she said. Uh, and then at the end, at, uh, in the late 1940s, early 1950s, uh, Baseball, the baseball gods reversed themselves, and Connie Mack's 
Philadelphia A's went really became ter- they were terrible. I mean, they were as bad as the Phillies are this year, and they were that way for five or six years. And at the same time, the Phillies very surprisingly established the uh, one of the few uh, great teams that they that they managed to put, managed to put together. This was the Wiz Kids, which who were the Wiz Kids from like I would say forty eight to fifty two, but mm-hmm. uh, won the National League pennant in uh, in nineteen fifty and had a lot of really good players. Uh, you know, not least Richie Ashburn and Robin Roberts, the big right handed pitcher. Uh, and what happened then? Was that as soon as all the uh, major league baseball teams started to shift their uh, shift their cities and move and uh, expand and everything like that, the, it was clear that Philadelphia was going to lose one of its uh, two teams. And ten years before, people would have easily predicted it would have been the Phillies to have moved. Uh, instead. Uh, in 1954, the A's, who were still miserable, moved first to Kansas City and then ultimately to Oakland, where they are today. And the Phillies remained. Uh, they played in that park for another good almost 20 years. It wasn't closed until 1971. Uh, and I think most people who have any memories at all of Shy Park have them of uh Shy Park under its new name, Conmac Stadium. Right. Uh, and they probably remember the Phillies playing there at a time when uh, the park was really in serious disrepair and uh, in which the neighborhood was deteriorating. Uh, and baseball in Philadelphia, I would say, during the, like, the 60s really hit a low point. Um, and I think in a way almost forced the city uh to consent to, uh, to funding the ballpark, which was the vet, uh, yeah. in which the Phillies then played for some 35 years. Uh, the vet, I think, was a much less interesting place, but it too kind of reflected, you know, something else about the United States when we were building. I, this is uh, the kind of thing historians love to say, but which has a lot of element of BS in it. And that is, this is a period. Uh, when the vet was built, the United States was involved in uh, war in Vietnam and this imperial image of itself. So <laughs> all the parks that were built then were kind of these huge coliseums uh, yep. of a sort. Uh, you know, the, as you know, the vet was designed for both football and baseball, and it was this big seventy thousand dollar chunk of concrete, which is a lot less friendly and interesting, I think, than either Shide Park, which preceded it, or Citizens Bank Park, which, of course, came after it. Um, just the fact oh. that we finally got rid of AstroTurf, I think, is a, a great advance. Yeah, no, that really helped. <laughs> um, you know, and, and as a kid growing up in the era of the vet, I still romanticize about that stadium as much as it was still a pretty, you know, Milchow Stadium. Um, but I know you talked to a lot of people who went to games at Side Park, County Max Stadium. What, what is the general like tenor of those people? Are they, are they romantic about their time they spent there? Uh, 
I think the problem is, unless you're an old, real oldster like me, uh, the Shide Park or Connie Mack Stadium in the 60s and 70s was pretty run down. Uh, and aside from uh, Dick Allen, uh, the uh, the great he played first base for the Phillies for some years, uh, there isn't much interesting that's going on with the Phillies during that period. So I, what I find is that more or less younger people who who were there in the 60s and 70s uh, don't think much of Shy Park. Um, and we're just as happy to finally get into the vet. I think if you're older than that, you remember, uh, at least have memories uh, or were told about the great Philadelphia athletics teams, or even remember the whiz kids of the 1950s, you tend to have a much more romantic and positive view of what Chai Park was. And there are reasons for that. I mean, the place did go downhill. Uh, the longtime owner of the Phillies uh, was a guy named Bob Carpenter, and then his kid took over Ruley, uh later on. But Bob Carpenter, whom I actually met and interviewed uh, a lot for this book, uh, really didn't care about the ballpark at all. He kind of, um, I hate to say this, was kind of a dilettante who, who just uh, was a rich man who bought the team. Uh, you know, kind of as a toy, uh, and he got the, the park along with it, which he really was not interested in at all. <laughs> so once he takes over the park, which is in the, the 50s and 60s, um, you see a real decline. Uh, one of the things that I lament is that somehow uh, Philadelphia or the baseball ownership wasn't able to maintain it like Fenway and Wrigley were because I think both of those uh, both of those stadiums are just magnificent. I mean, they're just wonderful. I know more about Wrigley than Fenway, but I've seen some games at Fenway too, and it, there's just something about uh, the, uh, the history of those parks and the comparative smallness of the stadium that makes your baseball experience much, much richer, I think, than it is even at these retro parks like, uh, you know, like Citizens Bank Park. Well, you can learn more, and I agree with you completely, about Fenway and Wrigley. And you can learn more about Shy Park and its history in the book, uh, To Everything a Season, and Bruce Cooklick, the author. Uh, it's, all, it's on Amazon. It's on other places. You can find it. Just look up online. But where can people find out more about your work, Bruce? About my book? Yeah, about your book or all, anything Sorry. you're doing. <laughs> oh, uh, just go to uh, – just uh, Google me at uh, Bruce Cooklick. Uh, I have a – I don't have a website, but uh, I'm retired from teaching at the University of Pennsylvania, and I, there's a lot of stuff on that website about uh, what I'm doing and even some stuff about baseball. I want to write a book on spring training called It Happens Every Spring, which I still might do. Yeah, I mean, uh, spring training is a is a wonderful, fantastic event, too, and Clearwater yeah. is a beautiful space, yeah. too, for the Phillies. It's done a really yeah. good job there. Uh, yeah. Bruce Cooklick, uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. 
My thanks again to William C. Cachetis and Bruce Kuklick for coming on the podcast and talking about the Philadelphia Athletics and the great history that they left behind in Philadelphia. Again, if you want to check out more of their work, William's books are all available on Amazon. You should check them out today. Connie Max 29 Triumph, uh, the book about Chief Bender, and the Philadelphia Athletics book, The Images and History book, are all available on Amazon and where you find books. And Bruce Cooklick's book, To Everything a Season, also available on Amazon. And you can just look it up right now on Google and just find a copy of it and get it. Please get it because uh, these are great books and they help preserve the history of a baseball in Philadelphia that, I mean, my, you know, I'm, I'm far too young to have ever remembered anything about the athletics before they were in Oakland. And, um, you know, my father, you know, is, is too young for the, for the Philadelphia athletics. So it's good to keep that history alive and to know what it was like in Philadelphia back in those days. Again, thank you for listening to the Phillies Nation podcast. Two hours, big one, right? As I said, hopefully we do that again in two weeks. Catch up with us then. In the meantime, next week you'll get playing the Rube. Uh, I think we're in Chapter 8, I believe, of our 2009 season on Out of the Park Baseball 18. Really fun podcast. You should listen to it. It's me and Dan talking for an hour. Really fun. really is. Honestly, it's, it's fun. Uh, the Phillies Nation podcast is available on... Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spreaker, TuneIn Radio, and YouTube.com slash PhilliesNation, PhilliesNation.com, Twitter at PhilliesNation, Instagram at PhilliesNation underscore, and Facebook.com slash PhilliesNation. Follow us, check us out, read us. We love you. Hope you love us. Five-star reviews on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. Please do it. Please do it because we want to hear more of your feedback and get more of your reviews. Thanks again for listening to the Philly's Asian Podcast. I am Tim Malcolm. We'll get you next time.